you know what you should not do, Ethan? What? Tell me. If you ever want to be a vice presidential candidate, you probably should not imply heavily and possibly even accuse the person you're debating of being a racist and a segregationist. Biden and Kamala are so funny. How do you do that? And I even saw a picture of them hugging one time. Like, and and, and now that they're going to be partners in this and whatever, it's just got to be so awkward. There was a picture at the top of Drudge Report this morning that had a, uh, it was them doing one of those like air hug things, but I assume they can't touch each other because of COVID. Yeah. But they're really like not wearing masks and, I, you know, it's just ridiculous. And remember, but Biden, Biden did this to himself because when he was being interviewed um, by, I think it was CNN for the whole presidential debates and whatever he was debating with Bernie, he committed to choosing a woman as his vice president. And I, I can't imagine that he was reluctant to choose her. Well, I mean, I think he's, uh, she, she also adds in the African-American woman. So she's got two different niches. Checking all the boxes here. Uh, so it's going to be really interesting. I, I, she is definitely a much smoother speaker than he is, which is going to make this, yeah, we already knew it was going to be an, an interesting election. Since Maybe this is a move by his campaign team to get a really smooth talker on his team. Well, and you know, I've already seen some chatter about she is the president in waiting. Because <laughs> we've got, this is going to be the first time, as far as I'm aware, it's the first time we will have two octogenarians as the candidates. We'll so everybody's going to vote assuming that, okay, I'm really voting for the vice president. Am I willing for this person to be vice president if, this per- if the presidential candidate dies within the next four years? Which sounds so mercenary. Really? But that's how it goes. Strategic decisions to be made. That's it. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to What's the Res? My name is Josh Herring. My name is Ethan Delves. And we are here to host the, com- the ongoing conversation on the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. It is 2020, and we are launching in today with the first Varsity Lincoln-Douglas resolution. So we're back to our regular resolution analysis episodes. The resolution reads, in a democracy, voting ought to be compulsory. What do you think? First thoughts. I I think it's interesting. Um, I think it's very interesting that this particularly to this parallels the novice resolution. Uh, We've got a democracy focused resolution. So really both novices and varsity members of teams will be focusing on the nature of a democracy. So especially this year where it's going to be very, it's very difficult for teams to attract new members. uh, And we've lost kind of one of our easiest draws hey, we do travel and we go to cool places. Well, as far as I'm aware, very few teams are traveling and going places. Everybody's going online. So it's going to be, I suspect it'll be helpful for teams to be able to more consolidate resources on the democracy front. But I think it's just really interesting that we've got this whole question at the heart of it in an election year. So as just as we're going to have the two big parties in the United States go head to head and they're both going to present their views of what America ought to be as represented through Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Uh, we're going to be debating about the nature of democracy and how voting operates in it. So I'm kind of excited uh, as we'll go through in a little bit. I think there's more happening in this resolution than initially appears. What do you think? What are your initial thoughts on the resolution? I think exactly what you said about it being a voting year. I think the timing couldn't have been any better for the NSDA to choose this resolution? Because I know it was in the workings for a while. They had that one stashed up for 
a special occasion. And I think this would be great for September, October for people to really get thinking about the upcoming election. I think one of the main questions in this resolution is going to be what is a democracy? And I think it could come down to a lot of definitions, but also what does it look like within a democracy for voting to be compulsory or, or other, in other words, can a government really mandate people to care about who's being elected? And I saw some, I was reading some numbers about some shocking voter turnouts in the past few years and thinking about what, what would it be like if we got everyone to vote and would people start caring more? Are people not voting because they're not able to or because they don't want to? How many people are, are wanting to and can't? And there's just so many questions that rose up in my head, in my head when I started um, researching into this resolution for a little bit. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. So I think the let, let's get started with a democracy um, and uh, and touch on a little bit of that. Because I think uh, that I agree with you. I think that's going to be key because how you define that term, especially on AF, is going to dictate where you go in terms of framework or where you go in terms of plan. Uh, but how you determine how you define democracy is critical. Now, you certainly could go very traditional. You could look at we're talking about the Greek words demos and kratos where demos is your people, kratos is your Greek verb for, or krato would be the Greek ver verb form for ruling. But we're talking about the ruling of the people. Or you could think about this more in the popular usage, where this is basically a self-governing people. They're not that different. But if you go to a formal dictionary definition, I think last year for the LD Novice resolution, we did that. And I think we talked about six different definitions of democracy and some slight variations on there. Any other thoughts on how defining a democracy plays into this? Not really. There's just going to be so much good literature coming into the debate because we're talking about a democracy. I can I can see a lot of really good values-oriented debate coming out of this resolution, which is cool because we're also applying it to something really practical, which is voting, probably in the United States, primary example, or any other democracy. But I think it's going to be cool that we actually get to stay on the values level in an LD resolution, and it's going to be difficult to go away from that. Yeah, I could see this being a very policy oriented resolution, but now I can now when I see the values oriented side, I think it actually has a shot at higher level debate, at least considering that this is going to be the Yale resolution, right? Yeah, this will be yeah. the Duke. This will be Yale. This will this be is great. Uh, I think I've seen three other tournaments have published their invitations on Tab Room in the last couple of days. Uh, there, there's some major tournaments that will be using this. So this resolution will be for September and October. So this will be one that uh, folks will probably get to go. Uh, really competitive teams will probably do two, maybe three tournaments on this resolution. Uh, I think at the heart of this resolution, is, there's a big question um, about for the nature of democracy. Must all people participate in the act of voting? Uh, must everybody vote for it to truly be a democracy? Now, clearly on AF, the answer is probably yes. Neg needs to figure out how the answer can be no. And really, mm -hmm. Neg's initial argumentative thrust, if you will, is probably going to be to be immediately on the offensive, trying to carve out space for the, abs the abstaining voter or space for the person who is thoroughly involved in a bunch of different ways in a democracy, but honestly doesn't care to vote. Like their Neg needs to figure out how does that person count in a democracy? Or is right. it only voting? Is voting the only issue in a democracy? I saw a lot of stuff about past voter turnouts. I think the most shocking number was in 2014, only 36% of Americans voted. So our our president was decided by 36% of the population. Um, and there's been a lot of talk about compulsory voting boosting 
certain voices or certain positions. And I, I've read a lot of articles about how if we mandate um, compulsory or we have compulsory voting, that it would end up boosting the progressive point of view so that we would have more voters on that side. And but then I also saw, again, I, I read that paper and then I read another one that said there's most academic research finds that no position is particularly helped by increasing the number of voters. But one really cool concept that I thought I should just bring up to sort of use as a launch pad into this conversation is that it, it which is from um, Dr. Brennan, who I was telling you about earlier, is he says that he's that when you call, when you mandate compulsory voting, when you have compulsory voting, you tend to limit the knowledge of the median voter, which is probably the like the most interesting way I've heard it put, where if you're telling people that they have to vote, you're you're skewing the results. You're skewing how much they know about the candidates, but on a scale of who, all of the people that are voting. And you look at the median person, that person probably knows less than if you had people who wanted to vote, start to vote. Uh, it, it's a shocking reality that in the United States, we really have at least these two levels. There's probably a dozen more levels, but I can think of at least these two. You have the level of person who is intellectually engaged in thinking about politics and policies and candidates, the sort of person who at least is reading the news and watching headlines and uh, tracking different opinions and so on. There's that person. And then there's the vast majority. The vast majority of Americans, it is shocking to think about, do not read after they stop schooling, which is still the majority of Americans. The majority of Americans do not go on to college. Most people in the United States do get a high school degree, but most don't go past that. And then once they are no longer in a school, it's as if the majority view actually shrinks to really be about uh, the individual, the job, the local community and local concerns. And it's almost as if big party politics like my senator, my congressperson, my uh, and the president, uh, that's, you know, other people are going to care about that. I don't really care. That's honestly where the majority of Americans live. And so the question like you, I'm sure you've seen those uh, like Jimmy Fallon does these every now and again where they'll do like man on the street interviews and they'll. Yeah. Yeah. Like, those are hilarious. Oh, wait, what's Jimmy Kimmel? That Jimmy one Kimmel. that I showed you that one time. That was hilarious. Did you show me the geography one? Mm -hmm. That was me. Okay, yeah, yeah. Now, that's what I'm thinking of. Where you're just like, you would assume people know these things, but honestly, not everybody does. That that clip was uh, it was like somebody with a blank map, and I I want to say it was like he was I like, where's know. where's like South America, and then they were or they were like, where's Canada, and they point to Russia or something. Yeah, and it's just like, okay, nope, uh, people don't know these things, and so I mean, that's a whole other interesting. Because what you currently have, at least in the United States, in the status quo, is the people who vote are the people who care enough, even at a bare minimum, to get up early, go to the polls, cast their vote, and then go on about the rest of their day with the little sticker that says, I voted, mm -hmm. just so we can virtue signal to everyone that we did the right thing in a democracy. Well, but And even you get a lot of those who are willing to do a little bit of research so your self-selected group who vote in the status quo has some level of interest. I think, I think Dr. Brennan is probably right about it's going to skew that data a lot when suddenly everyone has to vote or face a fine or a misdemeanor or a felony or so on. All of that is in play. Like how exactly do you penalize the, the guy who sleeps in on voting day? <laughs> 
Like, what happens to him? I know in, in other places where they have compulsory voting, like Australia, there's a fine. And there was an article that I read about there being a fine for not voting, but it's rarely imposed. So it's it's really lenient. I think in history, we were talking about this concept called salutary neglect, which comes to mind. But it's basically like you'll get fined if you don't vote, but not it, they don't enforce it that much. And they actually have a really good voter turnout. And they in Australia, voting is this huge event. They have a huge barbecue and everyone gets together. I know it's like it's like everyone gets together to whatever school they're voting at, has a barbecue and then cast their vote. And that's the end of it. It's like a huge party. But I don't I have no idea how the U.S. would go about enforcing this because you're right. How do you just p- penalize someone if their alarm didn't go off on on voting day or their voting day? It's um, a it's a weird idea. Not to mention that we would have to, particularly for the United States, we would have to have this happen at the federal level, which is going to draw in all kinds of weird stuff with like, okay, so we got to put this in place across 50 states. It's not something that every state would have their version of. It would be, we'd have to make it uniform. And that's that's additionally complicated. Um, I did find an interesting editorial or uh, opinion piece on the New York Times with some interesting data. So I'm going to read a couple quotes and then tell me what you think about these. Uh, First one, while turnouts are higher in United States presidential elections, 60% in 2016, can we say that democracy is thriving when 40 to 50% of voters still opt to stay at home? The United States is generally near the bottom of the list of well-off countries in its rate of voter participation. Second quote, in the United States, nearly half of the people who don't vote have family incomes below $30,000. And just 19% of likely voters come from low-income families. So it's hardly surprising that the Economist Intelligence Unit's Democracy Index downgraded the United States from a full democracy to a flawed democracy in 2017, based on diminished voter engagement and confidence in the democratic process. Both of those quotes come from an opinion piece entitled, uh, Dealing with the United States Voting Being Mandatory, uh, New York Times from October 15th of 2019. What, what do you think of those quotes, Ethan? I think I am on the polar opposite side of the spectrum as both of those quotes, because I feel like if, if someone doesn't want to vote, then that's sort of like their vote. You remember the Kierkegaardian idea uh, where he was talking about it's ethical decisions. And he's like, look, you can make the right decision or the wrong decision, but the worst thing is not making a decision. I feel like that's great in philosophy, but that doesn't really apply here because that's their way of saying that I don't care and I think that they have the freedom not to care. I don't think the government can impose a policy that's going to make them care. I'm going, I might butcher this, um, but there's this weird, like, dynamic sort of quote that I heard that might help structure my idea here. Where, And I have no idea who said it, but it's strong men create good times, good times create weak men, weak men create bad times, and bad times create strong men. And I think that we might be in the phase right now where we're so comfortable, exactly, it's a cycle, where we're so comfortable in the cycle that people don't feel the need to vote. They feel comfortable in their homes, they feel safe, they've got the technology they need, the income they need, the stimulus checks they need. And right now we're relatively comfortable even in the middle of a pandemic. When that changes, like I'm sure voter turnout was much better right after, you know, American Revolution. And then eventually we like get get it so that more people can vote and voter turnout's better. I feel like when it's necessary, people will start to care. But right now, nothing necessitates people needing to vote to the point where they're uncomfortable in their daily life and feel the need to elect a new leader. And I think that that's something that a government can't change. And that's an internal change that takes place over generations that stuff will just need to get really bad before people start to care. And I think that's okay. 
There, I, I think I agree with a lot of what you just said. I do want to jump in on one thing, though, about the American Revolution. It's uh, there's been a huge change from 17, let's say uh, 1781 with the end of the American Revolution and today. Uh, and that's a change of spreading the franchise where the franchise is the right to vote. Uh, and the uh, that is now extended to any American citizen above age 18. Uh, in the era of the founding of the American Republic, we were talking about uh, white male landowners are the ones who can vote. Right. Yeah. That's it. So you didn't even have it's not even really comparable between then and now. Uh, but you still had even then you still had low levels of voter turnout because uh, there's never been a time in American history, as far as I'm aware, where we've had enormously high I'm sure it spiked a little bit when women were allowed to vote. I'm sure lots of them exercised that new right. Well, I mean, but it, and then you get the, the difficulty of like, okay, yes, it spiked, but you just went, say, to use easy numbers from okay. if you have 100,000 people out of a million voting at a 10% increase, 10% amount, and then suddenly you have, say, 150,000 people voting, but now out of 2 million if you just doubled the possible voting populace, yes, your number goes up, but so does your wider pool of who could vote. So you think now, the percentage is consistent over time? I generally so. Like we generally have, like, I don't think we've now. And again, this is not my area of expertise. I know you were telling me earlier you landed, hopefully we'll make it work an interview with a guy who has spent a lot of time on this area. So we'll look forward to that. And maybe I, I may be wrong about this. And maybe there are these like clear demonstrable high points of like everybody loved JFK. So they all turned out to vote. Um, uh, the the vote in favor of Donald Trump was shocking to a lot of people in 2016, and it was functionally a vote against Hillary Clinton and against Barack Obama. Uh, right. And uh, I would be really surprised if we did not see a, a historically high voter turnout in the coming election because there are such strong opinions one way or another about Trump. And I would argue because of how active the media has been and or certain media is in boosting Trump, certain media is in bashing Trump that right. people like, have you seen all the memes on YouTube? I showed you a minute clip from the Axios interview just the other day. It was hilarious. My life's gotten too busy to pay too much attention to the current memes. That's why YouTube. I get if it's over three minutes, I won't send it to you. That's why I give you the bite size. Okay, let's get into some definitions. We've already talked a little bit about democracy. Um, so I want us to let's let's think about voting and compulsory, uh, uh, or the the rest of that phrase. Where really uh, voting ought to be compulsory. Um, what what do you make of that particular thing? What do you make? What do you see in that definitions wise? Definition. I have a lot to say in non definitions wise, but just start with definitions. Starting with definitions, let's go in order. Well, I'm grateful that ought's in the resolution, just like I'm grateful that ought is in any resolution, because that would that pairs nicely with the subject and predicate in this case. Um, I see a lot of, like you said, I do see potential for a plan, but I also see a hidden potential for a better values debate. Voting is casting your ballot in a democracy. Um, I would I would argue that, that well, there's going to be a lot of talk as to like what level of voting too, like presidential congressional what democracies like if they have different parties maybe it's every single election which would be a huge hassle and lots of penalties for not keeping up with it so i can see someone trying to narrow that a little bit and make it a little more reasonable and having to fight for that um 
compulsory. I looked at, I did the definition just the other day. It's mandated. It's, it's basically mandating or government mandate, which mm-hmm. I thought there would actually be a lighter definition of compulsory. Cause when I, feel, when I think of compulsory, I think compelled, like encouraged, but that's not the case at all. It's mandated by a third party basically. So it's a, it's a hard mandate for a level of levels of voting. We're not sure about yet. Um, what do you, you want to add anything to that before we go into what that entails for the resolution? Uh, I, I don't think so. I mean, I think okay. voting is pretty straightforward. We, we mean voting and compulsory uh, means you have to. And I, I do think the only thing is we, we've already touched on this a bit, but I do think if, especially if anybody goes with a plan kind of approach to this resolution, you need to be very clear about what the, um, about what it means for enforcement. Like, are we talking about a fine that is or is not enforced? Are we talking about a felony? Are we talking about a misdemeanor? Like, at what level do you care? Like, literally, are you going to shoot me if I don't go vote? And I hope not. Well, I, I do too. But at, and then at that point, if, if but if you're not really going to enforce it, is this really a change? Like, is that so? If a, if a team runs kind of something like you were saying about the uh, salutary, uh, what was your phrase? Salutary, salutary neglect. Yeah, if they run kind of that approach, like, oh, yeah, we'll have a fine, but we're not really going to enforce it. If I'm on neg and I hear that, I'm going to be like, but it worked somewhere else. Yeah, but I'm going to say, you're not really upholding your side of the resolution. Like, you're not. But they are. They provide a solution to the problem. It's not really compulsory if you're not going to enforce it. So I would be just like, I'd look for the nuances. Um, The first thing I see in this phrase of making voting compulsory is a solution aimed at a problem that can't be solved that way. Mm. Like I just, I think this entire debate if anybody goes the plan plan text route is going to be fought on solvency. Like you can argue that you'll be able to make voting compulsory, but I, I think the, the harder argument to make is why should it be compulsory? Which is why I see such a great values debate in here. Like, why would you want to make it compulsory? Do you want people to care about voting more? Like, and is making it compulsory going to solve that problem? Do you think people are going to get up out of bed and and study for this stuff and and like read Heritage Foundation and Cato Institute articles and you know watch the Daily Wire every day? They're not getting graded for this. They're just not getting punished for it. So they don't have to do good on it. They just have to get out of bed and check a box. Like it's and it's that's because it's compulsory. As in, you'll be punished if you don't do it. Not you'll be rewarded if you do it to a certain degree of excellence. Like it doesn't seem like a problem solver. So I can see people getting lost in a huge debate about whether or not this is physically possible. But at the end of the day, it's who can pull out the best why that's going to, uh, that's going to on the physically possible front. Uh, we still have not yet figured nationwide how to keep cities. The one that comes to mind is Chicago. Uh, there were several thousand dead Chicagoans who voted in the last presidential election. Like we still cannot solve voter fraud in the status quo. So how do we do this when suddenly we mandate, if we're talking about 30% of 300 million Americans, uh, that's about 100 million Americans. What happens when we triple that number? And do we triple the amount of voter fraud? <laughs> like, I mean, and yeah, to like Trump on the interview that I sent you was talking about how a dog voted. He was very upset about that because he was talking about his mail-in ballots. And he was like, a dog voted in the last election. A dog. And he was very, very upset by that. Could you please do your Trump impression one more time? No. <laughs> All right, we'll leave that later. Uh, it comes out when it comes out. Oh, man, that was actually really good. I could almost hear, I could see Alec Baldwin as Trump when you did that voice. Oh, my gosh. So 
but I, I, I'm with you on the the feasibility of a really a really strong traditional case here because I think you you got the textual grounding in ought, but really I think you've got a better you've got an easier argument to make if you take a two worlds theory approach and say uh, and argue that the judge is choosing a world that is preferable in the ballot that is cast. So you make a straight up. Uh, affirmative is arguing which of these two worlds, which of these two worlds is more desirable. And or really both AF and NEG could make that argument, either the status quo on NEG or this or affirming the resolution on AF. But I also see if you can come up with a plan that is going to uh, narrowly define what you're trying to do. I think this could be a really interesting, uh, there could be a really interesting argument with a lot of advantages that you come up with if you go the more uh, progressive route in terms of argument structure. I now, completely agree. Uh, one, as I was reading about this, I ran into a really interesting article that I'm going to bring up here in a minute uh, by a scholar named Annabelle Lever. The article is called Compulsory Voting, a Critical Perspective. It's uh, published in the British Journal of Political Science. She raises a really interesting question about uh, that comes into how we define compulsory voting. Are we talking about actually voting, in which case you run into an immense moral problem of causing people to violate their consciences if there's not actually a candidate they can morally affirm? Or are we talking about you have to show up at the polls? No, what? About- how does that at all meet any burden of definition? Uh, well, this would be like you would need to, if you want to use that kind of argument, you need this article, which I pulled off of JSTOR. It was published in, I think, 2011. Uh, we can we can link to to it in the in the description, but it will only be accessible to students who have JSTOR access. So uh, if you don't know if you don't know if you have JSTOR access, you should talk to your school librarian or your English teacher uh, and and see if you can get JSTOR access uh, for this. But uh, it, it, she makes a pretty interesting argument that uh, so at least you've got a use definition to say she literally says. There's a good argument here to be made for compulsory voting, really just meaning you have to go to the polls and you actually vote. I do not vote for anyone in this on this ballot. You're still voting, but you're not voting silently. You're not you're not you're registering your lack of a willingness to affirm anything on this ballot. And that's beneficial. How? Uh, I think it could be a really I, I think it could be an interesting definition I would want to have that card ready on NEG if someone else comes out and says, okay, if AF comes and says straight up compulsory voting, everyone must vote for someone on this ballot, I'd be ready to pull that out and say, nope, because Mm. that violates the individual conscience, which violates human dignity, and you just destroyed a foundational principle of democracy, so AF does not win. In a democracy, voting ought to be compulsory. This, like, I know, I, I don't know, but I suspect that someone is going to use that JFK quote that's like, ask not what you, what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. You can vote for your country? Yeah, vote, I mean, like, for, at the, the simplest, because he wanted to encourage people doing things for the public good. Like, are, is, maybe someone's going to make the argument that voting ought to be compulsory just because you're bringing out more good in a democracy and you're, you're mandating people to do what's right. And that somehow meets the burden of definition. Like that's what a true democracy is. All of which is assuming that voting is necessarily the action that is right in a democracy. Yes. And have a viable candidate to vote for. So for the record, I'll just Can voting be right. If you don't have a good candidate or a viable candidate to vote for. 
Well, that's the position I found myself in in the last election, because for a variety of personal conviction reasons, I could not vote for Hillary Clinton. And for a variety of personal disgust and moral reasons, I could not find it within myself to vote for President Trump. And so at that point, the question is, do I violate my own conscience in one direction or another, which is rejecting a key foundational principle of democracy that I want to get into here in just a minute, or I throw my vote away, which I ended up throwing my vote away, which a lot of people told me I meant I was voting uh, for Hillary by not voting for Trump, which I think is a terrible argument. You could just say the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't work that way. Um, so and but yeah. what if someone says the conscience doesn't exist well at that point let's let's they're they're also denying a functional component of the democracy so um i'm gonna do the piece that i'm gonna try and do this quick but uh i'm gonna go to point three on the outline and do a quick bit about laws voting and what's happening in a democracy do it for uh for our listeners this is probably not terribly germane to like giving you cards and framework but if you have not actually thought seriously about how we got to a democratic form of government as the generally practiced form of government in the world, this will be helpful background for you. So uh, with that, we're gonna start with Aristotle. Aristotle famously gives three forms of government in, the, uh, in his book, The Politics. Uh, there's rule by one, rule by few, rule by many. And he divides each of those into a good form and a bad form. In the rule by one, there is the monarchy, which is good, and tyranny, which is bad. In the rule by a few, there's aristocracy, which is good, and there is oligarchy, which is bad. In the rule by many, there is the democracy, which is good, and there is the democracy, which is bad. I say all that to say, uh, uh, for, for an awfully long time, people looked at the democracy. De- democratic rule has been thought of up until relatively recently, historically, as a kind of mob rule. And when you let the mob rule, the mob does not make good choices. The democracy is a rule of rule by honor and a rule by people who have achieved something honorable. It's much closer to what today we would call a meritocracy or the people in charge have earned the right to be in charge somehow. Where a democracy is literally pure democracy in ancient Greece was the of the eligible people who could vote, which was not everyone, but of that group, whatever 51% of them decided was what happened. And Aristotle classified that as the road to bad government because it doesn't lead to much stability. Okay, so the next piece, with that in mind, I want to speak really quickly to where the question of where does governing authority come from? Uh, and in the European tradition, which the United States comes out of and democracies worldwide come out of the European tradition, there are really three options that you can look back to across European history. The first of them comes from the Germanic tribes in like late Roman Empire days when the Romans called the Germans all barbarians and so on. These Germanic tribes would elect their king and the king's right to rule comes from the tribal election. Well, then you get the effectiveness in combat uh, way of becoming a king. And that method was generally happened in history. I'm thinking primarily of the War of the Roses. Uh, They said all kinds of things, but really it was whoever would actually win the most battles ultimately became king. And the Tudors won. The Tudors became kings of England because they won in the War of the Roses. The third one is what was most common and becomes most problematic to people today. Uh, And that's the divine right of kings, best articulated by a French theorist named Bossuet. 
where the divine right of kings essentially asserted that God makes God made me king, that's why I'm in charge. What you get in the development of the modern nation state is a new theory of government, which is what eventually leads to a democracy. So uh, that starts with social contract theory. Uh, three quick names, Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Thomas Hobbes, his version of a social contract theory is called the Levi is in his book, The Leviathan, where he argues that the people all come together and empower the king to tyrannically rule over them because that's better than an anarchy. Second option is from John Locke, who is the most direct person to influence the framers of the U.S. Constitution and the general perspective uh, in the British tradition of how do you make a country, where John Locke in his second treatise on government argues that each person has a conscience and a set of rights. And then when people come together to form a community, they give up some of their rights so that the community as a whole can benefit. Now, it's very important for Locke, and to your question a moment ago, Ethan, uh, Locke asserts that you cannot give away your rights for the violation of your own conscience, uh, because that's integral to who you are. Are you with me so far? Yes. Okay, good. The last guy uh, that I want to mention for this is Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Uh, Rousseau builds on the social contract idea, and he argues that, and Rousseau, it's important to note, unlike Locke and Hobbes, Rousseau is not religious at all. And he argues that what you are trying, the reason some people are in power is because they have been empowered by the general will. What he means by that is that each person in a society has a component of the general will. And when the people speak in mass through a vote, through a referendum, through some communication act, they from the people arises the general will that establishes whoever is in charge. Now, Rousseau is the most radical of these guys, which I hope is pretty obvious. Whatever the general will decides is what a country should do, is what is right, is what is good, and so on. From the Enlightenment onward, Rousseau is an 18th century Enlightenment thinker. From that period of time onward, the political conviction shifts very importantly. It's no longer located in some higher being. Uh, it's, it's the political authority does not come from God as we develop the modern nation state. The political authority comes from the people in some way. And the people must give the right to rule over them to the government. In a democracy, that typically happens through the electoral process. And so the question then becomes, uh, the, the primacy of the individual is key to the notion of a democratic form of government. The individual is voting and is giving his authority to rule to the, the representative that he is voting for. And that person then has the ability to make laws because the democratic process has resulted in that person being elected. Okay. So what we get when we get into the present day is that governments are not grounded. Governments reason that they can use, legitimately use force over their people is not grounded in God or in combat, but instead it's grounded in the consent of the governed. Now that gets us into the whole question of at what point is it immoral for you to say, I have this deep conviction and Therefore, I will not vote for someone who opposes my personal conviction. That's a key. That was a key piece of the way the American democratic experiment was put together. And it's key to the whole understanding of how democratic government works. 
Now, the question then becomes, and we'll get to here in a little bit later, like how does this work when we're looking at um, when the vote goes against you? As part of the democratic process, you have to go with the results of the vote, but you don't have to morally vote for that person, particularly if you're on any kind of libertarian John Stuart Mill approach to the notion of liberty within a democracy. Okay, I've been talking for forever. What do you make of all that? That one of the last parts near the end sort of made me think because you're right. You don't have to cast your vote currently, at least in the United States, for example, you don't need to cast your vote in favor of someone that violates your moral conscience and and your deepest convictions. You can choose not to vote. But if the if someone that which inevitably, if you disagree with both of them, one of them wins the election and they're that person that violates your deepest convictions you still are obligated to exist in a country and live in a country where that person is the ruler so you can't escape the consequences either way so maybe you just kind of have to cast your ballot in the less the lesser of two evils in which case in a moral sense you are still endorsing an evil which is this is where the this is where i think the negative and i'll 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 give some sources for this here in a minute this is where i think the negative's best theoretical argument is. There might be all kinds of practical arguments about why this will never work, the solvency stuff you mentioned earlier. But really, I think the key negative theoretical and philosophical argument is that in the affirmative world, if voting is compulsory, I must act in favor of someone. And the ability to abstain from the vote is taken away from me. Uh, I think it... Yeah, it makes sense to think of this in terms of the masses, too, because democracy is about the majority vote, and that's what we go with. So maybe personal convictions aren't all that important in this resolution either, because if, you, if you're still required to live in a country where the candidate you don't agree with won the election and they violate your deepest convictions, you could say that the government, like, I know that the government has given money to Planned Parenthood before. So if we're going to use the pro-life, pro-choice argument for a second, you're required as a taxpayer to pay into that regardless as to whether or not you morally endorse it. So why not require moral or why not require someone to make a choice with their ballot towards that sort of thing? Can you, can you point out a difference there that someone could use as a rebuttal perhaps? I mean, I would, I would probably look at the fact in that scenario, I would look to the I would look to the fact that um, that actually wasn't, that's an interesting scenario because there is a congressionally passed law promising that they will never do that. And then there is a, you have an executive order that is acting in defiance of the congressional law. That was President Obama who signed said order, if I understand this correctly. Now, President Trump ended President Obama's executive order and then issued another executive order kind of restoring compliance with the congressional law. So part of that scenario, I would say, has a lot to do with recognizing how exactly does the law get passed and what's what's in play there. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that's a really good analysis of the situation. And it's interesting. I think an interesting thing that's going to happen in rebuttal speeches for this debate, particularly, is one team saying that you can't do something. You can't morally endorse this or you can't restrict someone's right to morally endorse it. And then the other team pointing out to all of the examples that we already have in government where that's completely fine. And we let it slide. We exist in a system where that's prevalent and we still call it a democracy. 
So why not add one more thing to the list? And then that's going to put the burden on the original debater to start justifying all of the other things that the government does and drawing differences to where compulsory voting is not or could fit on that list without having the same consequences. Which I would probably look to the unique level of importance the resolution places on voting and build from there to argue that there is something about the vote that is different from the way from those other kind of things that do happen sort of implicitly where I'm, my taxes are paid. I do not get to choose where that money goes. I don't get to consent to the wars that the United States fights in or anything like that. But there is something foundationally important about the vote and the fact that I, as a citizen get to exercise my will in choosing to vote and there's something, the resolution is recognizing there's something uniquely powerful about the vote, which means that the vote is different from those other kinds of situations. As at least what I think that's the kind of move I would try to make. It's the only place where you exercise direct control over the outcome and not control, but influence. Because again, you're voting alongside one third of Americans and, right. uh, and possibly 100% if the resolution is passed, you could say. So I went digging uh, on this resolution. I was trying to read around on, on it, and my Google search turned up a few articles, which quickly turned up a couple of big names, and which sent me to a bit more scholarly literature. Uh, so this morning, I was reading that article I mentioned earlier on the episode by Annabelle Lever. Uh, and uh, in, that argu- in that article, she lays out a, what I thought was, it was a really helpful 15-page article. So it would not take anybody hugely long to read. It took me about 45 minutes to work through it. In that article, she lays out six steps in why people, six steps in the compulsory voting argument, what we could think of as the AF case, basically. And then she turns and gives basically her own view, which I think could be a really helpful approach to the NEG argument. Uh, so... Uh, unless you want to take us take us in a different direction, I'm gonna kind of run through her AF argument, and I want to know what you think of it, and then okay. we'll run through her NEG argument and see what you think, and then we'll kind of begin wrapping this thing up. Sounds good. Okay. So she makes her first argument, and I'm literally these are all quotes. These are the headings of her article that that are six steps in a combined argument of why we should have compulsory voting. Her first argument there is that low turnout is unequal turnout. She focuses on the fact that. Uh, In democracies around the world, you have the same thing we see in America, where less than half of the country is showing up and is making the decisions that determine how the country goes. So a low percentage of minority, poor, and uneducated voters results in unequal representation. And so what we would get then is an unjust governance because those groups are not represented in the polls and the results of the elections. I think this is part of what you were bringing, you brought up earlier about how there's suspicion that if we have this, we would see a lot more minority voices represented in the polls, a lot more fully than we currently do. Um, that's really her second argument uh, in this chain is that unequal turnout reflects and reinforces social disadvantage. The, there are several key groups, uh, whether we're talking about minorities or different identity groups that are currently underrepresented in voter turnout But then the fact that they're not there, that also then reinforces their own social disadvantages. So the fact that they're not voting makes that group in the future less likely to vote. It's 
The way she describes it, it becomes a sort of vicious circle that I think is pretty close to the poverty trap we've talked about on welfare resolutions a lot, where if you, uh, you, you make just enough money that you can get by with your welfare check, but then you make a little bit more and you no longer qualify for social security or for welfare benefits, but you don't make enough money to really be in a stable place financially. Same thing is happening with voting. Uh, now, this then uh, also as a corollary to this argument, she argues this deprives the left of presumed progressive voters who would favor increased welfare policies and so on. So this is something that would be seen to benefit progressive politicians and the policies they're trying to uh, get passed. Her third argument then is that compulsion is the best cure because in a world where uh, people choose to vote, they don't. So in order to make this better for the democracy, we need to compel everyone to vote. She goes then through, has a section of possible additional benefits to compulsion. And she argues that, uh, the, her fifth argument is that there are no liberties violated because of a turnout voting distinction. If what we're talking about is that everyone is compelled to turn out to the vote and at least register that they do not support anyone on this ballot, that gets rid of what I've been maintaining, that there's a violation of personal liberties in this kind of compulsion. She closes with uh, a, a moral argument that goes like this. Non-voters are free riders, and free riding is morally wrong. The argument is relatively straightforward. Uh, people who live in a democracy but do not vote receive a lot of benefits of living in a democracy, but they don't return a necessary participation in that democracy which makes them free riders. They're kind of floating along on the effort of other people's engagement in the democratic process. And because of that, they are riding on those coattails and it's sort of, it's a little bit like you should be paying taxes, but you evade your taxes, but you also sign up for welfare benefits. And so you get back from the system, but you don't pay in when you should be. All of that is the standard academic argument for why compulsory voting makes sense in a moral, in a, on a moral level. It's not focused on the practical stuff. Uh, for that, you should look to Australia as the biggest example, and then several Latin, Latin and South American countries that involve, use, uh, use compulsory voting. What do you make of that argument on AF? I think there's a lot of assumptions made in the argument. I think that, like, granted, you ha in, on affirmative, you need to assume a couple of things, but the first, like, two or three points are all assuming that progressive politics are the favorable, favorable form of politics which is fine because in honestly in most debate circles that flies pretty easily but again it's a it's I'm just pointing out that it's an underlying assumption that somebody could levy for attack um the it's saying that there's a low percentage of minority poor and uneducated, uneducated voters and let's keep in mind this is not just the United States either we're talking about all democracies i think we need to look for incentive there if it, if people just don't want to vote or if they physically are poor enough that they cannot get themselves to the ballot, whether it be transportation or uh, I don't know. I haven't researched that part of the resolution, but it's it's a and difference between barriers can, could be part of that as well. What could linguistic barriers? Linguistic barrier exactly, which would make and making that compulsory. I don't see how that would fix that. A linguistic barrier, a transportation barrier requiring more of people, you know, financially, educational, educationally. Can you imagine being a voting center if you have to guarantee? access to a translator for every possible linguistic group that could come vote at that location or put the ballot in that many languages. Oh I my mean, gosh. Yeah. Which is possible. But again, you need to think about like, I don't, I don't see anything in here that is a, 
extremely compelling reason to think that compulsory voting is a good thing. Mm -hmm. I think I see a lot of reasons as to what it would solve, but I need the impact, which is fine because that's what the debate case is for. That's not what the 15 page summary article is for. But, um, I, uh, the last argument was especially interesting too. the non-voters are free riders. Again, that's assuming that making people vote who likely don't want to would lead to a better democracy. And I can't, I can't take that. I won't buy that assumption without evidence. Like I'll buy a couple of the assumptions without evidence, but that one is just a little too expensive. I can't, you can't make me believe on point F that we have on the outline that when you start with the premise that non-voters are free riders and that's morally wrong, it's like, okay, but is there solvency there? Would requiring people who don't want to vote to vote lead to a better democracy and somehow we're not all free riders anymore? I don't know. I'm not willing to buy that at face value, but perhaps after some evidence, I would be. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, well, here's her, here's her negative arguments. Uh, and I'm keeping track of our time. We'll, we'll need to probably start wrapping this up here. In right. a little so uh, Lieber argues that in a democracy, everyone has the right to vote, but there is no internal compulsion to vote that's entailed by the right. Um, now, she draws on John Stuart Mill to argue that the only way that a compulsion would be justified was if it was in the self-interest of each voter. And that's then where she constructs a couple examples to argue it's entirely plausible that there could be times when there is no, uh, there's no candidate that a person sees to be in his or her self-interest. There might be a candidate who's in the interest of other people, but I cannot be compelled to do something that is not in my own self-interest based on the libertarian philosophy of John Stuart Mill. And she argues that there might be all kinds of scenarios where actually uh, practicality says just vote, but prudence might require abstention. You could have a scenario where uh, you're going to be penalized in your career or in the security of your property if you vote the wrong way. Uh, we don't have a huge, most of the United States does not have mafia problems, but there are places in the world that does have huge issues with organized crime and organized crime sometimes backs certain candidates. So what happens when you're compelled to vote and, and are you willing to risk life and limb for that? And when it's against your self-interest, uh, John Stuart Mill would say that's, that's not morally. I like that a lot. I like that argument a lot. It's it's on the fringe. It's something people would not expect, but I love it. And I feel like there's going to be a lot there. I, I, I think there could be. Uh, now, additionally, uh, she has a really interesting bit about respect for people's intellect and self-governance requires us to avoid forcing people to exercise their rights. She has this great comparison where the right to vote is something like the right to get married. You have the right to get married and no one, the, the fact that the right exists really means no one can force you to get married against your will. You, you can't just get like a letter from a family member. Congratulations, you're married. I want your spouse's money now. Like that, that legally cannot happen under our law code. Um, the same thing goes with the vote. The fact that you have the right to vote prevents the right from being misused, but it doesn't force you to yourself exercise that right. Uh, okay. Uh, she has a really, I thought this was very interesting, that uh, she makes the argument that requiring everyone to vote voices a lack of confidence in the democratic process. Because she argues that a lot of people look at this, they look at the representation factor and say that because people don't have anyone they're willing to affirm that they are not, or they, they don't have, they don't vote 
and they're not represented in there, and therefore the, that illegitimizes the democracy or that makes the democracy less legitimate, well, that ignores the fact that in a democracy, someone always wins and someone always loses. And there is an implicit agreement when we live together in a democracy that under rule of law, we will live under whichever government actually wins. And we will functionally assume that whoever is in power will rule in the interest of all rather than just in the interest of the specific group. And so requiring everyone to vote, shape, it removes confidence in that system. Does that, does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense, yeah. Okay. Uh, the last one, she argues, that uh, really compelling the vote forces undue attention on the legislative process as the key for democracy. I found this really intriguing because she focuses on there are a the fact that there's a lot of different ways that democratic societies cause people to be active in the society. Local associations, being part of school communities, civic leagues, uh, groups that get together and pick up trash on the side of the interstate. All of those are ways for citizens to be involved. Focusing purely on voting ignores all of that and all of the value that is created to a, in a society purely by people choosing to cooperate together. Um, so uh, for a direct quote there, she writes, forcing people to vote undercuts uh, a democracy because it implies there's something uniquely important uh, about voting for a legislature. Although in, uh, I'm going to stop this because my quote apparently messed up. So the point there being, uh, what she's really getting at is that there's a lot of different ways we can contribute to a democracy. Voting is one of many. And we focus just on voting, we dismiss all of the others as well. Uh, okay, uh, that's, that's most of what I have, except for a couple of quotes that we'll, 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 I wanna use in our conclusion. What do you make of the negative arguments there? Maybe I just lean negative, like, opinion-wise on this resolution, which is weird because I never lean any way opinion-wise on any resolution. I just research the resolution, debate the resolution, and then after seeing all the evidence, I come to the conclusion that I can't make conclusions about it because there's just too much good evidence on both sides. This one I can actually form an opinion on, which is nice. Um, the third one I feel like is more dodging the argument than actually making an argument against compulsory voting. It just seems like, why don't we focus on all the good things we do? It's like, no, we're talking about compulsory voting, but which which is fine because I guess the democracies do do a lot of other cool stuff, but that's just not topical. In terms of the resolution, thinking about how the author of this article didn't write it specifically for the resolution. So there's no harm there. Um, I think the first argument's great. That's just my instinct. I don't know if I'm going to use it for my negative case. I probably will just because I feel strongly about it. But in a democracy, everyone has the right to vote, but that does not entail a compulsion to vote. I look at it sort of like the marriage thing with the caveat that if you get married to someone that doesn't really affect other people, but if you vote in favor of a president that does affect other people. So it has a tie to the democratic process. I'm just not convinced that that tie is strong enough to justify compulsory voting. If that makes sense. Uh, I think there are other areas where the tie would be stronger. Um, requiring everyone to vote voices a lack of confidence in the democratic process. Yes. It's again, it's not like a direct, you know, crazy fire argument, but it's just a piece of logic that makes sense. This resolution just seems to make sense on the non-compulsory side, because I, again, I think forcing people who don't care to somehow care, it's like we're forcing non-apathy. I don't see, I don't see how we could just make people care. I think people will be forced to care when the time comes. And that's going to, unfortunately, I think be a time of great need, but I think that's just the way the world works. 
Well, I, I think your key there, you're, you're doing great to focus on the, the fact that we cannot compel people to feel anything. You can't change non-apathy by legislative fiat, or you can't change apathy by legislative fiat. Right, and there's one other, there's one other thing too. It's not only not, can we not change the way people feel, we can't, we can't change the outcome of their action because we're not, we're not saying, again, this is a punishment thing. Like I was saying earlier, you're not saying you need to do good on your ballot or you need to do a, a good job doing your research, filling out your ballot and then making a decision. It's just saying you need to go like that's, that's compelling a vote, but it's not compelling a good vote. I, I think you're absolutely right. And that's the, that's the key argument that uh, you mentioned him earlier, but uh, Jason Brennan is a co-author of the book compulsory voting for and against he's the against side of the book. And uh, his final line in the book is this forcing everyone to vote is like forcing the drunk to drive. <laughs> oh my gosh. He's, I, I'm looking forward to your interview with him because I think he will be very witty if that interview ends up working out. I but sure hope so. He is a big fan of educated voters, and he thinks if you compel everyone to vote, we're talking about one-third self-selected semi-educated voters and then two-thirds of uneducated voters who will vote because they are forced to or want to avoid a fi- and want to avoid a fine. So your uneducated voters are going to skew that big time. But on the other side of that book, the other co-author is a lady named Lisa Hill. She's an Australian scholar who's writing from a context that has compulsory voting. And her big argument is that everyone should vote because suffrage is the master right that protects all other rights in a society. So I thought it was very interesting. I want to know more about that argument. But from what I read, it seems like she's arguing that uh, everyone has a vested interest in creating a society that where certain rights are protected. But the way you protect those rights is you vote for people who will also protect those rights. And so the key right that protects all human rights is actually the right to contribute to who is in charge of the government. Hmm. So like that's that. the right that everyone has to participate in in order to protect their other human uh, rights. That last part, I'm not sure. But like that, all of that completely makes sense. I just think, again, I want to fight this battle, in, in my debate cases at least, on solvency. Because – like my main thought with it is like we we mandate paying taxes like you have to pay taxes but that's not something that you can do well or poorly it's something that you do or don't do it's not the same with voting there's there's degrees of how well you cast your ballot and i think that's where the the mandatory part of this thing sort of comes into play or it, it sort of falls apart well we've been focusing today on kind of the big picture superstructure theory arguments uh, I know as you get into case writing and everybody else prepping this resolution will do so, you'll get into lots of specifics. Um, the state of Georgia's constitution in 1777 required every citizen to vote. Uh, the nation of Belgium had a compulsory voting law that ended in 2004. There's a lot of specifics to get into that we'll need to add to these different theory arguments. But as we do so, I think um, I suspect the biggest argument on here on AF will be uh, a lot of people are going to focus on the likelihood of progressive policies being more likely to pass. Uh, but I think the flaw in that, I mean, the same flaw in really any future oriented thought is going to be that's going to be very speculative. They're going to have predictive data that's not solid. They won't have real working examples. I think for NEG to carry the day, a definition for democracy that respects the right to abstain from voting is going to be key. Having that definition is going to give you access to a certain level of libertarian uh, philosophy that will help 
with setting up the importance of the individual and the conscience and the right to not violate the conscience is going to be key to Meg. Right. Any last and, closing thoughts? And I think those are like the Georgia and Belgium are great examples that Neg could use is where we're getting rid of compulsory voting. And that's why you could fi- you could probably find an example there of why negative should win the round and sort of impact it out. But I know I lean negative on this resolution, so I want to be fair to the affirmative side. If you're looking for examples of places where you have compulsory voting and whether or not it fits your definition of democracy is up to you, look at Australia, Egypt, Argentina, Singapore, Switzerland, Turkey, and Brazil. And find some evidence over there. All of which are, a lot of those are thriving countries. Some of them are troubled countries. Like I put Egypt in that troubled category, but Argentina and Brazil and- Switzerland. uh, Switzerland. And did you say Singapore? Singapore. Those are all like hugely successful. There's good examples on both sides. This is going to make for some really interesting research. I'm excited for it. Um, well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us today for our first resolution analysis episode of the 2020-2021 season. Uh, we look forward to hopefully being with you all year as we figure out how to compete in the era of the coronavirus. Uh, Ethan, just in case people want to give us any feedback about this episode, how can they get in touch with us? If you want to get in touch with us and give us any feedback, you can do so at our email, which is whatstheres at gmail.com. You can also go to our website, that's www.whatstheres.com. And we also have an Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit handle, which is at what's the res underscore. What's the res is W-H-A-T-S-T-H-E-R-E-S at gmail.com. And until next time, work hard, speak well, and seek the truth.